Our reading today is from Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. You may have a seat. So grateful that we can gather together. Never want to take that for granted. Um, There's so many places in other parts of the world where uh, something like this is uh, impossible unless a death were to occur. Uh, And so uh, we want to recognize the immense privilege we have as a people of God at this time and age and who we are right now. Now Let's pray, and then we'll jump into uh, the Gospel of Mark. Father, I'm so grateful uh, that we are gathered under your name, and we do pray, Spirit, that you would help us to understand your word all the more, that it would be uh, revealing Jesus Christ in uh, powerful ways, that we would draw closer to him, that our affections for Christ would be magnified and stirred. And we pray that we would uh, walk with you, uh, that we would um, be in communion with you, recognizing the things that you have done, that you have paid it all, that your blood has washed us, and we can stand in that confidence. Uh, and, you, and you prescribe in this, in this text that we are going to be studying ways in which to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and yet we know that without you and your work and without the gospel, we are helpless. Indeed, we would want nothing to do with it. Uh, but because of your immense grace and love for us, there is a way. We are in the kingdom, and we know that it continues to build toward that day where you will come for us again. We anxiously await that. And we do need your help this morning. We love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen. One of my favorite things that I'm doing these days is um, running a carpool with Owen and uh, some of his friends. So not every day or every morning, every afternoon, but uh, multiple times during the week, I will uh, take them to school or pick them up from school and bring them home. And uh, if you've ever been around 11-year-old boys, you know what magic that is. Uh, Some of the things that they say, I know Noah can testify to this, uh, being a sixth grade teacher, there's something about uh, sixth grade boys and their imagination and what's going on in their mind that uh, reveals some really, uh, at times, sweet things, but more often than not, it's kind of this random, silly stream of consciousness. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was taking the boys home, and one of Owen's friends was talking about a boy that's in their class, and he said, I can't figure out how someone who is that short is so smart, which, which I, I just laughed to myself. I thought, what, what in the world does that mean? I should have asked, asked him what that meant, but uh, what we would give, uh, the, the, the term that that is, what we would call that is a non sequitur. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with that, that term. And a, a non sequitur, which literally means it, it does not follow. So it does not follow to us that being short has anything to do with being smart. But in the mind of 11-year-old Seth, it, it does somehow mean something. That the fact that you are vertically challenged also has something to do with, with your intelligence. I don't know exactly what that is. But for us, we would, we would listen to that, we would think about that, and we would say, that's a non-sequitur. It does not follow. I believe there are many today that interpret what Jesus is saying there in verse 15 as a non-sequitur. They would say, it does not follow that if Jesus is loving, that he also calls people to repent. But I really want to consider this morning, what do we make of this call from Jesus Christ himself 
this call of repentance and belief that we find here in this passage. So we are, uh, this now is now week three in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And so far, uh, three weeks in, we've uh, not made a, a whole lot of ground in chapter one, but I, I promise that we'll pick up the pace a little bit. But I think these verses, these opening verses of the Gospel of Mark have been really important to slow down and consider what is going on. Uh, even at the very beginning in just verse one, uh, we saw in week one that this is about, this whole book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul or Mark is not going to uh, want to obscure any of that. This is about the gospel of Christ. And then last week we saw how uh, the Old Testament prophecies concerning this Messiah have been fulfilled. Uh, John comes on the scene. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Jesus in that moment is both identifying with his people that he has come to liberate. And we see that the triune God is involved in the recreation of the world through the beloved son. And today we hear from Jesus himself. We hear the opening words, the very first words of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Mark. Uh, I like how one of the commentaries that I was uh, studying this week uh, kind of summarized these two verses. It says that Jesus is in some ways holding a press conference. Or if you were to hold a press conference, this is what he would say. He's stepping up to the mic and he is saying the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In fact, this is the, uh, the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we see that word kingdom. It's going to be a theme that is going to come up over and over again. Certainly not in, only in the Gospel of Mark, but uh, if you've read the other Gospel accounts, this is a big theme, the theme of kingdom. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? How should we understand what this kingdom is? I would say the, the kingdom of God is God's rule and God's place over God's people established in Jesus Christ. It's God's rule in a place with a people, and it's all manifest, it's all uh, established in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus announces that uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's not as if the kingdom of God has come into the world uh, in a neutral setting. There is uh, an enemy kingdom at this time. It's still with us even today. But when God declares, when Jesus declares here the kingdom of God is at hand, he's announcing that his kingdom is in contrast to this kingdom of the serpent, the kingdom of, of the world or Satan, of sin. And so... Jesus is saying, this is a new kingdom. This is a kingdom that is not like the other kingdoms. It's a kingdom that represents a new exodus. We used that term the past couple of weeks, that uh, this is a new exodus of God's people, that Jesus has come uh, to liberate and redeem a people from the slavery that they were found in to their own sin. It's a kingdom that is operating in the both already and not yet, as a lot of theologians will say. The kingdom of God has broken through. It is here. It is manifest itself presently. But we know that the kingdom of God will not fully be experienced until the day that Jesus returns. So it is here, but not in the fullest sense. And now as we read through the gospel of Mark together over the next several months, again, what we're going to find is that the kingdom of God is so easily misunderstood. 
That's why we've called the, the, the whole series Understanding Our King, because we want to have an eye to uh, this kingdom that God is revealing and showing us throughout the Gospel of Mark and, and beginning to pick up how uh, easily it is to misunderstand exactly what Jesus is doing. But it's only that uh, as we see the gospel truly unlock the nature and the paradox of this kingdom. It's only because of the gospel that we would even be able to understand the kingdom in the first place and that this is a kingdom that runs through the cross. But there is, there is mystery, there is a paradox that we're called to understand with greater and greater proficiency as time goes on. And that's a gift that God gives his people himself. But for today, Jesus is very clear as Chris was talking about earlier, there are going to be times in Scripture where there is uh, mystery, where things are fairly obscure, at least on the surface. But here, Jesus is very clear in the opening words in his uh, so-called press conference to the world. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here. I am the king. And here's what your response needs to be. Repent and believe. If you're taking notes this morning on the handout that was uh, passed out on the way in, here's the main idea this morning. The main idea is his kingdom come demands a response. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is here and it demands a response from us. So I have three, three points this morning. Those are also on your handouts. We can fill them out together. Here are the three points. I'll, I'll list them right off the bat. I'm going to spend most of our time in the third point, but the first two points are this. Jesus preaches the gospel amid suffering. Then Jesus preaches the gospel in darkness. And finally, Jesus preaches the gospel of repentance and faith. We're going to spend most of our time in that third one. But first, Jesus preaches the gospel amid suffering. And we see that right off the bat in verse 14, where it says, Now after John was arrested... As we read last week about this John, John the Baptist, uh, the baptizer, if you will, uh, coming onto the scene, we saw multitudes of people coming to him, flocking to the wilderness of Judea uh, to confess their sins and to be baptized by John, and now he's been arrested. Jesus uh, is coming to preach or proclaim a gospel in the shadow of, of an injustice, of suffering. We, we see immediately John has been arrested. In fact, John has been delivered up. It's the same word there where it says arrested that we'll read later in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus himself delivered up, arrested, a great injustice. John will be killed and so will Jesus. I mentioned this last week, at the time of this writing that Mark uh, pens the gospel here, uh, this gospel of Mark, uh, there are people in, in the 60s AD, this early church, this audience that he was writing to, who were being persecuted. There was a lot of suffering under the Roman emperor Nero at the time. And so as people are reading this, they are suffering themselves. And then they read that John was delivered up. And certainly they would have known this because of the recent church history the recent history of the faith. And so even as we just read a brief statement about John the Baptist's arrest, we are reminded that the gospel is always being announced in the midst of suffering. That's the context. Whenever we speak the gospel, we know that it's going out into a 
heart or a world that is in the midst of suffering. And so as, go, as goes John, so goes Jesus, and then so shall we on the road to suffering and persecution. Secondly, Jesus preaches the gospel in darkness. The next part of verse 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, Galilee is actually going to be the setting uh, in and around Galilee for the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to spend most of our time in Mark in this region of Galilee. And so what is important about Galilee? Well, in one sense, nothing. Nothing is incredibly important or significant about the region of Galilee. It is fairly insignificant. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, But this is exactly the place that we would expect to see this particular king, Jesus, start his ministry. He's from Galilee. He's from obscurity. Nazareth is in the midst of this region. And the gospel begins here. The gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. We also understand if we read the Gospel of Matthew that uh, this region of Galilee is actually uh, a a fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 9. I'm going to read uh, right quickly from uh, Matthew chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. It says this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is what the prophet Isaiah was referring to, that there would be this region that is dwelling in darkness that desperately needs the light, and the light has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel shines brightest in the darkness. The gospel will always be heralded in the midst of suffering. The gospel shines bright, brightest in darkness, and we find that there are plenty of dark places in the world today and in our own hearts. The gospel is the light, the light of Jesus Christ. So this king, Jesus, is preaching this gospel and seeing his kingdom bring light to darkness. He is, as we study Mark, going to see uh, Jesus bring life where there is currently death. He's going to bring hope to despair. He's going to be preaching and teaching. He, he will be uh, healing and he will be casting out demons. He'll be touching uh, people. He, his own touch will heal people. He'll be providing compassionate care, and he will be forgiving sins. This is the kingdom of the beloved son, and it has come to a dark place. So Jesus preaches the gospel amid suffering, and he preaches the gospel in darkness. And thirdly, Jesus preaches the gospel of repentance and faith. Repent and believe in the gospel. Part of the challenge that I've experienced this week in preparing for this message is is really just to consider how big of a topic this is. We're talking about kingdom, kingdom of God. We could spend weeks, months, years, and never be exhausting the topics and the the things that we could talk about when we're talking about kingdom. Uh, We're going to be talking about repentance and faith this morning. These are just big topics. So I found myself in many ways being challenged by the size and scope of what we are attempting to do this morning. Martin Luther, we've, we've said this before here on a Sunday morning, maybe numerous times you've heard this. Uh, Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life is repentance. 
and repentance and faith, or repentance and belief, go together. They're inseparable. You can't have repentance without faith, or faith without repentance. In fact, repentance implies faith, and faith implies repentance. Maybe we, we should begin really just with the definition. What are we even talking about when we, when we say those words? What does repentance mean? What does believe or faith, what does that mean? I love how Sinclair Ferguson describes the experience of faith or belief. He says, it's a resting on a, re- on a reality strong enough to support you. Faith is a resting on a reality strong enough to support you. And repentance is a turning away from sin and toward that reality that is strong enough to support you. Jesus tells us plainly how to enter the kingdom, repent and believe in the gospel. But here's the deal. We've already mentioned it, but we can't say it enough. We cannot repent and believe apart from the gospel. So Jesus is saying repent and believe in the gospel, but if we don't have the power of the gospel working in our lives, we won't repent and believe. It's a gift that's given to us. We've given this gift of repentance and faith from God himself who empowers us through the Holy Spirit to walk in repentance and faith for our entire lives. And the rest of Mark is going to show us, he's going to show us what it looks like as God's people to walk in repentance and belief. And it's going to show us how we do that amidst sin, doubt, disbelief, brokenness. This is the life that we find ourselves in today, is it not? And if Martin Luther is right That all of life is repentance. If that really is the hallmark of the Christian experience, then the father of the boy with the unclean spirit in Mark 9, who cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, is also right about what all of life looks like as well. When we we look around, all the, the brokenness, the the battles that we all have with sinful desires the temptations that cause us to waver, when we walk in gospel honesty, when we are truly aware of what's going on in our own heart and the world around us, then the whole of Christian life is, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the experience that we have as believers in God in the midst of our own sin, in the midst of our own suffering is, I believe, help my unbelief. I repent, help my unrepentance. And he does. He does. Jesus is uh, telegraphing something quite important uh, here in this passage when he tells us to repent. When he says repent, because once again he is showing that the biggest enemy uh, that you have and that I have is our own sin. That the biggest enemy that we face in life is sin. The barrier to the entry into the kingdom of God is our own weakness, wickedness, and rebellion. And this is, this is what Jesus is saying. He's very clear. One of my favorite salvation stories is from a man named Beckett Cook. I don't know if any of you have heard of this man. He's, a, he's an author. He's also a Christian podcaster. Beckett Cook lives in West Hollywood and is an evangelical Christian. You can kind of just already wonder exactly how that works itself out. 
If we know anything about Hollywood, especially West Hollywood, and that uh, Beckett is an evangelical Christian, what he describes in his salvation story is being saved out of a lifestyle of homosexuality in 2009 when he went to an evangelical church for the first time and heard this gospel preached that Jesus is preaching in this passage. And Beckett Cook says that the Spirit of God fell upon him and convicted him in such a powerful way, and he sensed God saying this, I am God, Jesus is my Son, heaven is real, hell is real, the Bible is true, welcome to my kingdom. Now, I'm not bringing up uh, this particular story about this particular sin of homosexuality. I'm, I'm not uh, desiring to make this some sort of hobby horse uh, that bring up as an example over and over again as if this particular sin is uh, worse than any other sin that uh, any of us struggle with. We all have sinful desires that Jesus calls us to repent from. I'm chief among them, chief among us that I need to repent of unwanted desires and sinful proclivities. But we know people who struggle with this type of sin. We know them maybe in our own families. We know them as friends. There are people even among us, no doubt, that have some sort of same-sex struggle or desire. Maybe you know them in your life. Maybe you don't. But when I bring up this sin of particular sin of homosexuality, you see faces, you hear names. And so I I want to acknowledge that these are not just abstract ideas, that these are not just uh, whitewashed uh, sin struggles that we can throw up as words on a screen or on a page, but these these are people, dear people in our life. And if these people, if they tell you that they've been shamed by Christian, I believe them, sadly, And if they tell you that no one has listened to their story, I also believe that that has happened. But if they tell you that their life cannot change in this area, I say no way. Their life can change in this area because we, we're, I think we're far too short-sighted about the power of the gospel. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and me and in those that he is bringing into the kingdom. The power of the gospel can do this. And it's not just homosexuality. It's pride and addiction and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And the list can go on and on. We have all fallen short. Not one of us can stand before a holy God apart from the work of Jesus Christ. I've seen this miracle of gospel power in so many lives. Many lives here as I stand before you in my own life, my own marriage. We are all born with unholy desires. They, they come in different uh, flavors and in different ways, but all of them are unwanted desires in some form or fashion. But when sin is our slave master, we need a new exodus. We need a new redemption. And that's why Jesus has brought his kingdom from heaven to earth. Jesus preaches a gospel of repentance and faith. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. How many churches today would allow Jesus to preach this sermon? At the same time, how many of us do not want to hear this sermon? You see, to repent is a violent endeavor. 
It's not for the weak at heart. It's, it's not for the squeamish. It is a violent endeavor. I don't want uh, any notion that it isn't to kind of pervade our thinking about repentance. It's, it's a violent denouncing and leaving one kingdom, switching allegiances to another kingdom, the kingdom of God, and it is not for the faint of heart. In 2007, the first year of my marriage with Molly, uh, I finally after years and years, repented of ongoing significant sexual sin that was plaguing me and wrecking our marriage. And I came to the end of myself, but I tell you, it took a long time because of the fear that repentance brought into my heart and mind. And, and, and if we're candid, we would all say that when we think about repentance, there's a fear attached to it. There's a fear. There's a fear that I wouldn't know what Molly would do, how she would respond. There's a fear of what other people think. There's a fear that I wouldn't be able to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a fear that life would not be worth living if I didn't keep this sin in my life. And all of this is playing out uh, with the headwinds of our culture that tends to see sin and repentance in a very weak way. Uh, in general, in our world, there's a weak view of these things. Many, in many ways, we've uh, pathologized sin. We've made it more of a, of a disease that you can catch, but then it's not your fault. And we've kind of seen this culture of victimization that has come into our world. And again, friends, that is not at all to say that there isn't something like a medical diagnosis that someone can be afflicted with. That's not at all to say that there isn't true injustice and victimhood, that people have been abused and people have been sinned against. Those things are very real and we should be, as the church especially, be very clear about when those things happen. But believer, no matter who you are, At what age you've lived, the temptation will always be to minimize our sin. The temptation will always be to bypass repentance to get to grace. God is love and God says repent. Those two things are true at the same time. Even if we, in our flesh, even if in our sin, we think they're a non sequitur. Well, those two things can't be true at the same time. But Jesus says here, repent and believe in the gospel. Maybe when we hear this word repent, we, we are immediately hearing the voice of an angry street preacher that we encountered at some point in our life. Maybe when we hear this word repent, we're imagining a, a, a sign that someone was holding up on the street that was full of hate. But let us not forget that repentance is very much biblical all throughout scriptures. And let us not forget that Paul in Romans 2 said that it's God's kindness. It's God's kindness, the compassion of Jesus Christ that leads to repentance. Repentance unto life. And this is why we're going to, and why we do, talk about sin here at City Church. Because it's the loving thing Jesus has called us to do. Not only to talk about sin, but obviously to point us all the more every week at any point that we can, point, pointing one another to repentance, to not be okay with our sin, to war against the flesh, to do that violent thing of denouncing the kingdom of Satan and walking in the kingdom of the light. That is what we want to call ourselves to over and over again. And it's not because we're angry, it's because we're, we're loving. Love you. If we're angry at anything, it's sin. Just like Jesus is angry at sin. 
He hates it. He hates what it's doing to his people. He hates what it's done to his world. So we will, as Jesus does here, call one another to repentance and faith. I have a friend right now who is going through an absolutely horrific experience of his wife walking away from their marriage after 10 years, no explanation. She's left. What we do know is that she's moving headlong into uh, wickedness and evil and sin. And I've been walking with this brother for the past several months, and we've wept together, and we've pled with God, we've prayed for her. And what's happening right now, sadly, at least as of today, the church that they're a part of has yet to call his wife to repent. They've yet to interact with her and call her to repentance and into belief and into communion with Jesus Christ where she would find the truest joy in her life. When we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit and desiring the kingdom of God to grow in the hearts of our people, we will carry the refrain refrain that Jesus does here in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe in the gospel. Find yourself resting on Jesus. He is the reality that is strong enough to hold you. That Jesus is the one that we run to in repentance and faith who is strong enough to hold us in our brokenness, to hold us in our wrong way of thinking. Jesus is the one that is strong for you. So as we wind our our time down this morning, I do want to try to answer this question. How do we repent? Because we've been talking in some ways this morning, kind of at the 35,000 foot level. We've been up here, but how do we bring this down to where you and I live and everyday experience, getting very, very practical? How do we repent? If Jesus is calling us to repent, not just once as an unbeliever going into the kingdom of God, but if we are truly are, as Martin Luther says, living a life of repentance, what does it look like? To repent. I sure would like to know myself. Maybe you would as well. First, we should acknowledge the context of repentance is never merely a private experience. Repentance is not just only in your own mind, uh, maybe uh, wrestling with your sin and, and telling yourself, I'm not going to ever do that again. Uh, repentance is never only a private experience, although it can be in the privacy of your own home. It's always toward God and other people. It's a very public thing, actually. As we, as we confess our sin and as we uh, repent from our sin, we are saying these things, we are desiring th- these things, first and foremost to God and then to others. Repentance involves being specific about your sin. It requires you naming your sin, uh, being able to say exactly how you sinned against God how your sin affected others in a very particular way. Because when we sin, we always affect one another. Whether we uh, see it on the surface or not, uh, because we are the body of Christ and are interconnected, uh, the various members of our body, uh, when one of the members sins, it affects the other. There's no way around that. So as the Spirit convicts you of your sin, what exactly is that sin and how exactly did that sin dishonor God and hurt others? Repentance involves genuine sorrow. Genuine sorrow over our sin. Not a worldly sorrow that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. A worldly sorrow is only sorrowful over the consequences of the sin. 
Uh, a worldly sorrow is, is actually not going nearly deep enough. What we desire, what we want to pray for and ask for in our repentance is a godly sorrow, a genuine sorrow that not only mourns the consequences of our sin, but the sin itself, that we have sinned and we see that sin in light of a holy God and we weep over it. We're broken over it. We see it for what it really is. Have you mourned your sin? Finally, repentance means a desire to change now. I think I I see this uh, so often in my own heart that uh, I I see a sin, I confess a sin, and in, in my attempt to repent, I either say it out loud or I think to myself, I want to repent from this sin, but I'll do that next week. Or I'll do that when I, when I turn 50, I will finally walk in repentance from this particular sin. Uh, repentance is now. There's an urgency. The, these are the opening words of Jesus Christ in his gospel. Repent and believe. There's an urgency to it, family. So repentance means repenting today. Now, we turn back toward God today. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel because this is where joy is found in his kingdom. However painful it is to acknowledge our sin. And I I, I obviously want to be incredibly honest about that. And I think as we think about repentance, we could uh, kind of put it in this category of, yes, life is about repentance. I need to do that. And we skip over the fact that it's painful. Of course it's painful. We're acknowledging the brokenness in our own hearts. And we're doing so, recognizing it before a holy God and before people that we love, knowing that our sin has hurt them. There's pain associated with this. But however painful it is to acknowledge our sin, may we never lose sight of the fact that the end result On the other side of that pain, through that pain of our confession and repentance, we are ushered into the arms of Jesus Christ. That we have joy and peace and life everlasting in the arms of Christ. Repentance restores our relationship with him. Repentance restores our relationship with others. I know so many of you, as I've heard your story, heard the stories of repentance, of where you were walking in sin, where you were walking in ignorance and the Spirit convicted you, the sweetness of reconciled marriages, of reconciled friendship, all these were forged in the fire of repentance. Struggling friend, I don't know who you are in this moment, but I imagine a message like this, the sermon that Jesus himself is preaching in Mark 1, 14 and 15, struggling friend, wherever you are and whatever sin that, that seems to cling so closely, we stand ready as this church to come alongside you to pray that you would repent from your sin. Pray that the Spirit would convict you that it is sin and that you'd be able to speak about it in a way to repent, turn away, and walk in newness of life. What would it look like to repent of whatever sin the Spirit is convicting you of today? How can we help? How can we come alongside? We want to be that place. I've mentioned this several times. City Church is a place and praying that it's continually a place and a growing place where you can be honest about your sin, vulnerable about the things that you were going through, a gospel honesty that does not lead to shame or despair, but leads to life everlasting as we acknowledge before God that we have fallen short, but that he has welcomed us in, that he has made a way. It's because of the gospel 
that we can repent and believe in that gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this is a kingdom that runs through the cross. We sang about it earlier. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the price for us. So as we remember that we are called to repent and believe in the gospel, we remember that Jesus did this for us. He is the one that allows us to believe in the gospel and to repent. He died and rose again, and now we are in him. We actually want to repent now. Those of us who are in Jesus want to repent. It's amazing. It's a work of the Spirit, and we believe now because we know that Jesus has accomplished these things for us. And when we repent and believe, this is the path to the authentic self that we hear so much about in our culture. You want to be authentic? You want to be your truest self? You want to be the person that you were made to be? Repent and believe in the gospel. In Christ, believer, please never forget this. That in Christ, as we do these things, as we walk in repentance, as we strive for communion with God, and as we strive with our own sin, never forget that the sin that we fight is forgiven sin. Amen? It's forgiven sin that we fight. It's a defeated devil that we stand apart from. The devil has been disarmed. He does not have any power over the believer. And it's a remade world that we live in. You can look around and see all the terrible things going on. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is broken through. We see it visibly here in the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. His kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, we do. We, we see that your kingdom is here. We see you as king. And where we haven't seen you rightly as king, where we uh, want to have a Jesus that's in our own image instead of the Jesus of the Bible, instead of you, Jesus, saying these words to us, repent and believe in the gospel, uh, may we be cut to the quick. May we indeed be convicted even of that sin, the sin of unbelief and pride, of wanting to uh, forego what you have said and to chase after our own desires that are contrary to your will. And we all fall short. Not one of us can stand before a holy God apart from being covered by your blood that you shed on the cross for us because you love us. And your grace is poured out with your blood upon your people. So we pray that we would repent and believe, that you would help us, Spirit, to be convicted and to confess our sins and walk in repentance and know the freedom that it affords us when we do such things, that we are free. We're free from the power of sin. We've been redeemed in Jesus Christ. And we know the kingdom is broken through. We know it's here in part. And one day we'll be here fully experienced without the presence of sin or brokenness or suffering. And when you come again, we will see you as you truly are. We cannot wait for that day. We ask that it would come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.